Let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter number 19. Matthew 19. We've been in a, a series on the family, the home, for some time. And over the last several weeks on Sunday nights, we've been really dealing with the subject of marriage and what the Bible says about uh, particular roles in marriage and, and how it's to function and how it's to work and those kinds of things. And one of the things that I mentioned last week is I really believe that most of the issues and problems that arise in marriages can, can really be traced back to uh, a lack of understanding or a, a lack of application, if nothing else, of God's intention for the roles between a husband and a wife. And if we would follow that, uh, many of our, our needs and our problems would be addressed right there. Now, in addition to that, however, I also believe that there is something that in our modern times has kind of been lost in our understanding in regard to exactly what a marriage is and what it is supposed to be. Uh, there are people out there, for instance, who would say, well, I don't believe in marriage. And, you know, marriage is a, uh, it, it's a, a man-made idea or, uh, or, you know, I don't need some piece of paper to tell me who I can love or who I can't love and those kinds of things. Listen, marriage is more than just a piece of paper. Marriage is more than just someone that you love. Marriage is an institution that was created by God. And it's something that is distinct and different from every other relationship uh, known to man. And so we're going to read tonight just a few verses from Matthew 19. And then we'll end up, as you might not be surprised, back in the book of Genesis. Because that's where uh, we learn so much about marriage right from the very beginning. So Matthew 19, I'll let you remain seated tonight as we read, beginning in verse number 3. I want you to notice it says here, the Pharisees also came unto him, that's to Jesus, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? I'm thankful that even in Jesus's day, uh, uh, divorce was a sticky issue. Jesus had to deal with it too. Sometimes uh, the, the issue of divorce and remarriage comes up and a question is asked and it's, you know, there's kind of this thought, oh boy, here we go. Well, apparently it was the same issue with Jesus because this was a question that the Pharisees brought to him with the intention of tripping him up. Let's, let's see if we can catch him in his words. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And that was the debate between Jews at the time. Uh, are there certain reasons in, in, that, that make divorce acceptable? Or is it that anyone can divorce at any time? They just decide they don't want to be together anymore and they divorce. And what does God say about that? And I want you to notice in verse number 4, it says, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to, to give a, war, a, a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now those are some pretty strong words from the Lord Jesus there. And it's something that, honestly, even in his day, it was a very controversial teaching because if you go back to the Old Testament law there was a provision in the law for an allowance if you will for a a man to be able to divorce his wife and there were certain reasons given for that that he could he could write a, a bill of divorcement he could divorce his wife and so now these Pharisees are saying well uh Jesus if every marriage is to last forever then why did Moses, and I love the, the word that they use, verse 7, they say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Why is it well, this one of the commandments? And Jesus' response to that in verse 8 was, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered or allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, you go back to the Old Testament law, and yes, there were provisions in which it was acceptable uh, to divorce, but that was because of the hardness of the hearts of people, but this is not God's will. And I know that we have covered this uh, fairly extensively in previous months and some of the series that we've done and so on and so forth, but I just want to reiterate here that it's important for us to understand that from God's perspective... Marriage is a permanent arrangement. Uh, It's not something that we enter into half-heartedly with this idea, you know, boy, I hope this works out and, and, uh, and, and, and goes well, and if not, we can always separate later. God, from the very beginning, designed marriage to be the joining of a man and a woman, and it literally has been, from the beginning of creation until today, It has been God's intention for marriage to last, as we say in our wedding vows, till death do us part. It is from now until God calls one of us home, we are joined together into one life. And there are some really important things that we learn from this passage of scripture dealing with that. One is, uh, again, the permanence of marriage, that God is for the permanence of marriage. uh, In fact, the Bible tells us that God hates divorce, he hates the putting away and, and, and he's even said, if you divorce and remarry, in God's eyes, that's like committing adultery because you've, you, you've, you've made this commitment to one individual. So God is for the permanent, permanence of marriage. And then also, of course, we learn here uh, in verse number 4, he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. There's another thing we learn from this passage of scripture about marriage, and that is if we really want to know God's mind on marriage, we have to go back to the way he designed marriage before sin entered the picture. We've got to go back to the creation and what was God's intention. For instance, we might look through the Old Testament and say, well, see, God permitted and God allowed for a man to have multiple wives. We see several men, several godly men who did that Throughout the Old Testament, we see Abraham having multiple wives and, 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 uh, and Jacob having multiple wives and David and Solomon. My goodness, that man had uh, you know, a, th- a thousand wives. I mean, it, there, that was, polygamy was practiced in time, at times in the Bible. And even though there was an allowance for it, God didn't necessarily directly condemn it in Old Testament times. Certainly, we come to the New Testament and we realize that that was never God's plan 
And it's very clearly defined in the New Testament that God doesn't want a man to be married to more than one woman. It's one man and one woman. This is God's plan. We find that in, in commandments. We find that in qualifications for pastors and deacons. God wants one man and one woman. But what Jesus is saying here is you didn't have to read the New Testament to know that that's what God wanted. All you had to do was go back to the beginning. If you really want to know what God thinks of marriage, look back at the creation and where he designed it, and that will answer your question. And so we learn that also from this passage of Scripture. But I really want to zero in tonight on a particular phrase that I think maybe tends to get overlooked in our day and age, something that we kind of miss sometimes. Notice it says in verse number 5, and he said, for, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, that word twain is an old English word that means two, they twain shall be one flesh, wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. And I want to just take a few moments tonight and, and speak to you on the subject of no more two, but one. No more two, but one. They are no more twain. They're no longer two individuals. They are one flesh. You see, I believe that today we have people who enter into marriage with this idea that I'm making a commitment to this person and I, I am expressing my love to this individual and, and, and expressing my commitment to them. But in their mind, what they're thinking is the two of us are going to learn to just live life together. And I would say after watching marriages and after dealing uh, with couples and counseling for, uh, for years and, 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 and working with couples, it's amazing how many married people, husband and wife, live together really as glorified roommates. They're living their lives almost as individuals who happen to live in the same house and be legally bound to one another. But this was never God's plan. This was never God's intention for marriage. God literally said when a man and a woman come together, they are now one flesh. They are no more twain. They are no longer two individuals. They're a package deal. Many people want the benefits of marriage, but they don't really want all the commitment that comes with that. They have their own friends, their own hobbies, their own careers, their own dreams and goals and aspirations. Uh, sometimes it goes so far as that they have their own bank accounts and they have, uh, ha they have their life over here and their life over here and there is a, an area where those two things intersect in their home but for the most part they're two individuals who happen to be trying to do life together. In essence, is that not kind of what we are as a church family? We are a bunch of individuals who are one body in Christ, but we go about our lives, we live our lives separately. Uh, we, we have our own jobs and careers, we have our own homes, we have our own friends, we have our own lives, but we are joined together here. But I want you to know that the marriage relationship is very different than that. God's plan was never 
for two people to live as individuals living together, but rather for them to be joined together as one. And so I want to go back to the book of Genesis where he told us to go if we want to know about God's plan for marriage. And look at this passage that we've looked at now several times over the past few weeks in Genesis chapter 2. And this is where we find the, the first man and the first woman coming together in marriage. And I want to just point out some things to you. And I know a lot of this won't necessarily be new, but hopefully it'll be helpful to us. I, I, I want, and I believe that God wants, for each of us, each of our, our married couples tonight, to recognize that our marriage is not what it ought to be unless we are living life in unity with one another. That, that our marriage needs growth and help until we can get to a place where we see ourselves not as two individuals but as a unit working together to accomplish God's will and plan for us. I want you to notice here in verse number 22 it says, "...in the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones." And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. We come to this passage of scripture, we see this first marriage here, and even the declaration ...that Adam made as he looked at Eve and he said, this is now bone of my bones. Well, Adam could say that, couldn't he? I mean, without any kind of metaphorical speaking, uh, Eve was literally made from one of his bones. She was taken out of him. So it was, it was easy for him to say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And maybe today we don't have that. My wife... Uh, it has a different makeup than I do. She, does, she wasn't taken from my rib. We have distinct DNA. We're two different individuals. And I can't say in a physical sense that she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But I really believe that God intended for this to be a lesson for us to say, look, when, when two people are joined together, they are one. God sees them no longer as two distinct, different individuals, but as one unit. They are to be one flesh. There was a recognition of this oneness. Friend, when we join in marriage, we commit to merge our lives from two into one. There are marriage vows, you don't hear it as much today as you used to, but in the marriage vows, some of the older ones used to say, unto thee do I pledge all my worldly goods. What, what is that saying? Everything that I have is now yours, and everything that you have is now mine. You know, the things that, even in, in our home, the things that I own are really not mine, they're ours. So when I go out and I buy a new gun and I bring it home and my wife says, why'd you buy yourself a new gun? I say, no, I bought us a new gun. 
This is for our family. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Those are mine. <laughs> no. But the thing is, we've joined our lives together and everything that I own is hers and everything she owns is mine. And by the way, the Bible even teaches me, and we'll look at this in a, in a few moments, that even my body no longer belongs to me, it belongs to her. And her body no longer belongs to her, it belongs to me. We are one together in the Lord. We have been joined together. Can I encourage you? I don't know all of your backstory. I don't know all of the things that go on in your home, but can I encourage every married couple here tonight to recognize and acknowledge that your lives, some of you have been married a long, long time. Some of you are fairly newly married. Some of you have been married before, and, and maybe it's difficult in, in a second marriage to, to really live this out. But I, I just want to encourage you, look at your life and say, God has given me this partner. He's joined us together. We are no more twain. We are one flesh. And by the way, that means when one of us succeeds, we both succeed. And when one of us struggles, we both struggle. And when one of us is hurting, we're both hurting. And I think that this is something that is lost so many times. And, and I was going to speak about this later, but I think I'll bring it up now. One of the things that concerns me most about marriages is when I'm talking to two people and I can tell that their, their attitude toward one another is more adversarial than it is that of two people working together. They're not pulling on the same end of the rope. And, and what I mean by that is when there's some, some root of bitterness or something there that causes one to almost be happy when the other is down. You ever seen that before? Oh, the, you know, the wife has a difficult day and then the husband comes home and she finds out he had a difficult day. But rather than encouraging him, she's kind of happy about that because, well, you know, at least it wasn't just me. He had a bad day too, you know. Or the need to always be right and the need to always compete and the need to always one-up the other person or have the leverage in the situation. The problem is, you and your spouse are not opposing business people that are working a negotiation against one another. You are supposed to be a team working together. And when I start talking to people and I get this idea that they're kind of, they have begun to see each other as, 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 a, as an enemy rather than a partner, it concerns me that they've forgotten that they are one. They're one. Notice, he says to her, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then look at verse 24. There was a relational change that took place. <laughs> and this is really interesting that it's injected, interjected here. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Why is that interesting? Because nobody had a father or mother at this point. 
Adam was just created and Eve was created out of Adam. Neither of them had a father or mother. But yet right, right in the middle of this it tells us, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Why is that? Because this was a picture of what ought to be. And so it says, here's what happens. When these two lives are joined into one, there is a relational change. What relationship changes? Every other earthly relationship. I say to the young people and to those who aren't married here yet today, when you get married, if God provides you with a spouse, you need to know this. The moment that you put that ring on your finger and say, I do, your relationship to that person changes completely and your relationship to every other person in the world changes completely. At least it ought to. I remember at my wedding, standing, I can still remember that day very vividly in my mind. I remember standing at the altar and at Sunrise Baptist Church in Oakley, Kansas, where we got married. May 19th, 2007, we're coming up on 16 years. May 19th, 2007, 10 o'clock in the morning. By the way, if you're not married yet, get married in the morning. You start your honeymoon earlier, it's better, okay? 10 o'clock in the morning, we had our, our wedding. And I remember standing in front of my wife and saying my vows to her. And as I was repeating the vows, one of the phrases that I repeated that the preacher said was, and forsaking all others. And it was like a realization came over me that I guess intellectually I knew but, but it was like it, it hit me in a different way that when I am making this commitment to my wife, my commitment is I am leaving everyone else behind. Now that doesn't mean that I don't have friends. It doesn't mean that I don't still have a father and mother. It doesn't mean that I don't have a sister and cousins and, 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 and people that are special and, and, and precious to me. But when I joined my life with her life, every other relationship changed. I do not, by the way, have friends who are ladies. Now, I... That's not an insult to you ladies. I mean, I appreciate you. I love you as sisters in the Lord. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have a conversation with you and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but my friends are not ladies. The only ladies that I would consider friends are those that my wife and I are friends with. Why? Because when I married my wife, I forsook all others. And every relationship changed. My friendships with guys are different than they used to be. I used to have buddies. We'd go hang out and go do stuff. Didn't even think about what time it was. I used to have a friend that found... He's still a friend of mine, but... He loved Krispy Kreme donuts. Loved them. We lived about an hour west of Milwaukee when I was in high school. And he found out that the Krispy Kreme in Milwaukee opened... At like 2.30 in the morning, 
because that was when they started shipping out donuts to all the different stores and gas stations around the area. And so there were a lot of times that he'd call me up at like 1.30, 2 in the morning and say, hey, you want to go to Milwaukee? I'm going to get some Krispy Kremes. And you know what we'd do? We'd get in the car, and at 2 o'clock in the morning or 2.30, we'd drive an hour into Milwaukee to buy donuts. You know, and it was just foolish and stupid and silly. But I, but I did that stuff. I was, I was free to do that. I was an individual. I had the ability to do that. When I got married, that stuff changed. Why? I mean, I could still do that. I could still decide I'm going to just go, kind of go live my life and hang out with the guys and have fun and do whatever... But the thing is, when I got married, my relationships with other people changed because I made a commitment to her. And specifically, I want you to notice that it says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. The biggest change in relationships was my relationship to my family. Now, I'm thankful that I have a good relationship with my parents and my sister. I talk to my dad probably a couple of times a week on average, and my mom maybe once a week. We, we, we've got a great relationship. I love them. I appreciate them. But when I got married, here's what happened. I left their family and started my own family. A man has to leave his father and mother when he takes a wife. And a lady has to be willing to leave her father and mother when she joins a husband. This is very important, and sadly, it's often forgotten. But when this commitment is made, listen, I don't go and talk to my parents if there's tension between my wife and I. If there's a problem in our home, and I'm thankful we don't have a lot of problems in our home. We, there was a time it was different. that We had some struggles early on in our marriage. I'm thankful that we're past a lot of that. But one of the things that we committed to very early on was we were not going to talk to the family about those things. We'll go talk to a pastor. We'll go talk to a friend. Uh, but, but we're not going to go running back to mom and dad. Why? Because we've left that family. And we've started a new family. And what happens sometimes is, quite honestly, in-laws get in the way. They do. In-law problems are a very real problem. We, we joke about, I, I tell some really good mother-in-law jokes. My mother-in-law laughs at him, so I think it's okay. She might be sharpening the knife or something. I don't know, but, you know, she laughs. She thinks it's funny. I tell, I tell in-law jokes. I tell mother-in-law jokes. I tell my wife. She's got a great mother-in-law. Um, but, you know, I do too. It's all right. But the thing is, we left. When we got married, we left. Now, not everyone leaves the area one of the things that, that we did just because of God's leadership in our lives, when we got married, we moved 500 miles away from both of our families. I was living in Fargo, North Dakota. We were fi about 500 miles from my parents, closer to 800 miles from hers. When, when we got married, she came and moved in with me. 
And here we were, 500 miles from my parents, 800 miles from hers. And I can tell you this, I don't think everyone needs to do that, but for us, that was one of the best things that could have happened to us. Because we were all that we had. <laughs> we left father and mother. Now, you, you don't have to leave the area, but you need to leave. You need to leave in your heart. You need to leave in your mind and your understanding that a man must leave his father and mother that he may cleave to his wife. And that's the other thing about this relationship is not only is there a leaving, but there is a cleaving. To cleave means to hold on to. It means to cling to with intentionality and tenacity. Marriage is an interesting thing. Sometimes it's really good and enjoyable and it's something you can appreciate. And sometimes it's really hard. But in the good times and the bad times, you need to be committed to cleave, to hold on. You need to be committed to say, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm holding on for dear life. I'm going to do everything in my power to make this marriage last and to make it what it ought to be. I'm afraid that too easily and too quickly people today are willing to give up when times are hard. To cleave has this idea that I'm, I'm holding on to something because my life depends on it. I've, I've thought about before, if I, if I, I don't know why I, I get this picture in my mind, but being on an airplane and kind of starting to fall out and holding on. Because <laughs> I know if I, if I let go, it's all over. Imagine what kind of strength you would, would just have to hang on, to cleave. I think it's important, if we're going to be one, if we're going to have unity in a marriage, we have to be committed to cleaving, to holding on to our spouse as if our life depends on it, because in a sense, it does. When we got married, our life became no longer my life, but our life together a man must leave and cleave. And then it says, and they shall be one flesh. And then I want to bring up to you also this statement in verse 25. Where it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I know I've touched on this before. But I want to just mention this again. And I understand there's mixed company here. I want to be careful and, and sensitive to that. But God wants a man and his wife to be in complete unity with one another. And that extends not only to the relational and emotional and spiritual aspect, but even the physical aspect of marriage, there to be in unity. God created these two individuals. They were, it says, both naked and not ashamed. 
Sadly, our world has taken something that God created to be good and to be helpful and to be a blessing and they've perverted it and changed it and they've made it into something dirty, something that you have to blush when you speak of. But God's perfect design for marriage included a relationship where there was oneness and openness. Spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. And I want to just point out a few things to you about that tonight as we consider unity in marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, if you'd go there with me. Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13 and verse number 4. It says this, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now the end of that verse tells us that when we take and pervert the intimate physical relationship of marriage, that God will judge that. This world is being poisoned by lust and fornication and pornography and adultery and homosexuality and all kinds of things that are an abomination to the Lord. God will judge that. God will deal with that. But the first part of the verse tells us that within the bounds of marriage, an intimate relationship is not only acceptable, but it says that it's honorable. And it's undefiled. God's design for marriage was, was that there would be perfect unity between two individuals on every level. No more twain, but one flesh. One other place I want to show you on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with this aspect of the marriage relationship. And I've known people who in their minds they've thought of this particular aspect of the marriage relationship as something that is embarrassing and shameful. You know, it only exists. In fact, I've known people who've literally said that aspect of the marriage relationship only exists in order to reproduce and have children. And therefore it's only acceptable and only right when the end desire, uh, the, the, the outcome is that there will be children brought forth into the world. That's not at all what God says about this. Notice it says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 3, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. You say, boy, that's awfully sexist. That doesn't fly in this day and age, right? But notice the other side of that. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. I mentioned earlier, I don't belong to me anymore, I belong to her. She doesn't belong to her anymore, she belongs to me. We have ownership of each other. And then it even says in verse number 5, defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. In other words... This relationship that God created 
as a good thing between a husband and a wife is not only acceptable, it's honorable, and it is necessary for the sake of unity. And if there is a time to abstain from that, you need to agree to it ahead of time and give yourselves to prayer and fasting for a time and then come together again. Why? Because God wants people to live together in unity. He wants husbands and wives to live together in unity. This is a good thing, friend. Husbands, wives, you need to determine, I belong to my spouse. We are one flesh And that covers every level. We are one. And there is no shame in that. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. Very briefly, I just want to mention a few things that I see as being enemies to unity in marriage. First of all, one of the enemies of unity in marriage is individualism. I mentioned that before. When you think of yourself in terms of me rather than we. There, there should never be a time where you have this idea, I want to do this. I want to get ahead in my career. I want to move here. I have this dream. I have this goal. No, Listen, if you're married, it's not me and I, it's we. What does God want for us? How do we do this together? You're no longer an individual. Individualism can be an enemy of unity in your marriage. Inappropriate relationships with other people. Inappropriate relationships with other people. Um, Again, this goes back to not only relationships with people of the opposite sex, but even uh, relationships, friendships, or family that get in the way and get between you and your spouse. Here's the thing. The, the most important relationship in my life is between me and the Lord. That's number one, and nothing ought to get between that. But the most important earthly relationship is myself and my wife. And every other relationship has to take a back seat. My relationship to my kids, to you, to my family that I grew up in, to my friendships... Every other relationship has to take a back seat. And if if they don't, it's out of order. It's inappropriate. Inappropriate relationships can get between us and cause disunity. We talked last week extensively about our roles in marriage. The wife submitting to her husband and following his leadership as if he were Christ. She is to submit to him as unto the Lord. We talked about the husband. He is to love his wife even as Christ loved the church. He is to give himself for his wife, these are the roles that God designed us for. When these things get out of order, there will be disunity in a marriage. And can I say also that if there is unforgiveness and bitterness, it's an enemy of unity in your marriage. We're in 1 Corinthians. Go forward to the book of Colossians. We just finished up our study in Colossians on Wednesday nights, but I want to look with you at Colossians 3. Colossians 3 and verse number 18, very similar to the admonition in Ephesians 5, and it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Then it says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter 
against them. Unforgiveness and bitterness. I know, ladies, that your husbands are not perfect. How do I know that? Because I'm one of them. I'm an imperfect husband. We all are. And husbands, I know that your wives are imperfect. But you must be committed to forgiveness. And a willingness to move forward together. Oh, you you don't know what he's done to me. You don't know what he said to me. You don't know how she treats me. And what she says about me to her friends or to her family. Love your wives and be not bitter against them. The Bible speaks of a root of bitterness that springing up troubles you and thereby many be defiled. And I dare to say that there are probably some marriages, some homes represented here where there's some things that you're still clinging to, hurts from the past that you're not willing to move on from that are going to keep you from having unity in your marriage. Friend, tonight I just want to say as we kind of wrap up our, our look at the family or at the marriage relationship aspect of the family, recognize tonight that if, you, if you're married, you have been made one with another individual. You're, you're no longer individuals. You are one flesh in the Lord and commanded to live in unity. That unity needs to be a unity that forsakes other relationships and is committed to your spouse. It needs to be one where you are cleaving to, to your spouse, your husband or your wife, and unwilling to let go, and one in which there is openness and honesty and intimacy and love, one where you are willing to fight and get rid of enemies, things that would come between the two of you because God has made you one. And then I just want to read our text again tonight and we'll close in a word of prayer. Matthew chapter 19 is where we started. I want to just reread this with you with those things in mind. Matthew 19 and verse number 4. It says, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. And then there's this admonition. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Don't let anything come between you and your spouse.